That's it for announcements. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 23. I'm actually going to save verse 24 and 25 for next Sunday. They go with this section, but man, they're so good just to stand on their own. Hebrews chapter 10. Oh, if anybody needs to borrow a Bible, you guys know the routine, right? Just raise your hand real high and John and Genoa have some extras. We'd be happy to let you borrow so you can follow with us. Again, Hebrews 10. We're picking up where we left off from two weeks ago. And if you are there with me, I'm going to invite you to stand, please. The writer of Hebrews, we've mentioned several times, he doesn't identify himself. A lot of people believe that it could be Paul the Apostle, and there's some support to that idea. But he doesn't identify himself. We trust it's the Holy Spirit who inspired this person to write these words, not only for the Christians in that century, but also for us. And so we read, Therefore, brethren... Having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he, that's Jesus, consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, here's the imperatives he lists out for us, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water, and let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. All right, we'll pause there, and let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning just with hearts of gratitude, of love, of adoration, Lord, hearts that seek to be filled with your Spirit. Lord, I pray that we would want to be like those in the Gospel of John who came just saying, we desire to see Jesus. Lord, I pray that 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 would be our heart today, that we would desire to see and hear Jesus. Father, we agree with the psalmist that you might show us your way that you might teach us your path, and Lord, that you would lead us in your truth. And so we commit our time of study to you this morning. We ask and pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, would you take a moment, say hello to someone, and then you can have a seat. All right, uh, in my introduction, I have a little bit of a longer introduction, so please bear with me. Uh, some of it will be a review, which will be good, because some of you I haven't seen in a bit, so maybe this will be helpful. Uh, for nine chapters, the writer of Hebrews has been carefully and, I would say, thoroughly making his case for Christ. 
The original audience, you remember, were Jewish believers in the first century who had, in one sense, come out of Judaism and came to a faith in Jesus Christ, a vibrant faith in Jesus Christ, believing that he was the Messiah, that he was their Savior. Now, it wasn't just the Jews that were in Jerusalem. It was all of Judea and those who would speak Hebrew, and hence the title of this letter being addressed to the Hebrews. We had mentioned before we understand from the context of the entire letter that they were experiencing tremendous pressure and persecution from their peers. It extended to their family and their friends and their neighbors. In many ways, it was a first century type of cancel culture that they were experiencing. And the message to them was, do what we do or you are dead to us. In fact, history tells us that there are even families who would hold funerals for their loved ones who left the faith to go follow Jesus. And so they would treat you as though you were dead. So we can understand there was tremendous pressure to renounce Christ and return back to the old ways of living, the rituals and the law and the uh, rules and structures and ceremonies. And we had mentioned that in many ways, this letter is timely for us. We can relate to a lot of the things that the Hebrew Christians were going through. We too are living in a time when following Jesus is becoming more countercultural than ever before. That you can, and some of you have and are, experiencing tremendous pressure, and maybe even in the category of increasing persecution from your friends and your family, or maybe your co-workers in the world around you, that similarly demand that you might compromise your convictions. And more and more, we're seeing just fractures in friendships and division within family because we have chosen to follow the Lord. And I don't think I have to convince you that increasingly the message of the masses in the world around us to the church is to step aside and be quiet. And yet the Bible calls us not to step aside, but to step up and to stand firm, as Josh encouraged us last Sunday. And so the writer has been seeking to remind and to reinforce the truth that Jesus Christ is the answer. And Jesus Christ is better than anything else in this life. In context for them, Jesus was far superior than all of the old worship system, all of the priesthood, all of the old covenant. And gang, that truth extends to the fact that Jesus is superior to all of our old ways, whatever they might have been for you, or whatever you might be in currently. Christ is superior to our old life and really to any pleasure or pursuit that we could ever think that we would you know, find satisfaction in. Because nothing else in this life will fill the hole in your heart Nothing else in this life will satisfy your soul. Only Jesus Christ can. A living, dynamic, 
loving relationship with Jesus. And so from the opening verse of the book of Hebrews, the writer has set forth with that goal in mind to make his case that Christ is superior in every way. And he began with just saying, first of all, Christ was better or, or greater than the prophets. That he wasn't just the messenger of things from God, but Jesus, in fact, was the maker of all things. And he wasn't just the messenger of God, he is actually God the message. The message is about him. Jesus is the message. We read in the Gospels, in Luke chapter 4, how he goes into the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. And as it was their custom, he was this uh, teacher of the day, if you will, and so he would receive the scroll, the Old Testament, the, the book of Isaiah. He would read a section from that. He would roll it back up, hand it to the attendant. And the crowd that was there would be listening, waiting for the Bible teaching, waiting for the commentary. And Jesus would look at everybody and say, Today, the Scripture has been fulfilled in your sight. It's all about Him. He's not just the messenger, He's the message. The writer goes on to say how Jesus is greater than the angels. As impressive and as powerful as angels were, Christ is superior. The, the writer makes the argument that they do His bidding. That the angelic host of heaven serve at the pleasure of the preeminent one. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. In fact, he even ups the ante and says, Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses was a faithful servant in all of God's house, and yet Jesus is the faithful son. And it's his house. Jesus is greater than Aaron greater than the, the entire priesthood families. Yes, they were men who were called by God and sanctified by God to do this special work, but they were men nonetheless, sinful men and flawed men. They stood in line and had to make an offering just like everybody else did. And Christ was superior. Came as a man, experienced temptations, and yet without sin. He wasn't flawed, he was flawless. Christ is greater than Joshua. The writer explained how Joshua brought God's people into a temporary place of rest and how our Jesus, the captain of our salvation, brings us into a true and permanent rest. And all of these arguments, stacking one upon another, and finally, adding to that to say that then the writer reveals how Jesus is superior to the entire system. That covenant 1.0, the old covenant has been fulfilled. And because it's been fulfilled, it's now set aside, it is, if you will, replaced by covenant 2.0, the new covenant. And the writer goes on to explain how the old covenant had a, a designed uh, what was the word we used? Obsolescent, thank you. It had an expiration date. And it was powerless to change the heart. It was like a, a revolving door. It only served as a continual reminder of the fact that we're sinful. 
over and over again. Sacrifice after sacrifice again. And yet Jesus, one sacrifice, one final, full, complete payment of Himself, canceled the old contract, therefore no more payments are necessary. Therefore, no more sacrifices are needed. This coming month, uh, Christy and I will be celebrating our anniversary. 20, oh no, 20, it feels just like yesterday, babe. Uh, 24 years. 24. That's what I said, 24. When we got married, Christy had, uh, if I can say this, I didn't ask her. I married into a lot of debt. And, and the biggest part of that was her student loans. And so, you know, we just started paying off the cards, and I would be the one like, oh, we're going to cut this car. You don't need to go to Nordstrom's and, you know, Macy's and all these stuff. Anyways. And so we started to pay off all these debts and started to pay off her student loan. And, but every month we got a bill, and some years later, as an anniversary gift, her parents very generously said, hey, we want to bless you, and, and paid off Christie's student loans. And what a day that was just to be able to be debt-free. Like, we no longer needed to pay that bill. We no longer need to write any more checks. It was all done. It was paid for. It was glorious. See, what rituals and rules and religion could not do, Jesus did. And the writers told us he paid the bill completely. We don't need to pay anything else. There's nothing else to pay for Jesus paid for us and he paid for all. And because what he did for us, we then are free. And free then to enter into a loving relationship with the Father. Now the author has provided us nine chapters of this. Of doctrine, of truth, of declaratives. And now here at Verse 19, the writer pivots and turns from doctrine to duty, turns from declaratives to uh, imperatives. What do we do in response to all of what we have just learned? What do we do in light of all of this truth that the writer has explained to us in great detail? By the way, that is the pattern that we find in many of the epistles of the New Testament. And that is why some believe that perhaps Paul even wrote this. That's, that's his pattern. He often has a careful, you know, he lays out uh, this foundation with reason and scripture, doctrinal truth. And then it's followed by a call to respond in faithful duty. Learn this and live this. And that's the pattern we find here. And we've talked about this before. Right? right living begins with right learning. And, and so that is why we spend a lot of time unpacking these verses. Because if we get the foundation of Scripture wrong, we will get life wrong. If, if we don't understand who God is, and His love for you, and His grace, 
and what Christ has done for us, if we get that wrong, listen, we will get our priorities wrong and our pursuits wrong. I'll add this, we'll get our marriages wrong. We will get family wrong. We will get our pursuit of career. Every, if the foundation is jacked up, everything else will be jacked up. And so that is why, and I appreciate your patience and your grace with me that we spend careful time just wanting to understand what does the Scripture say? And then what does it mean? And so in light of the superiority of who Jesus is, now the writer brings us to what do we do with that? Verse 19, therefore, that's the pivot word. That's the verbal highlighter that we look through when we're reading Scripture. We come to that word, it's a term of transition, it connects us to something previous, and for us, not only does it connect us to the first part of chapter 10, but all of the first nine chapters. You guys tracking okay? All right. Therefore, brethren, having boldness. Let me just pause in the second word. and It'd be easy to pass this word by, but I, I want to pause just for a moment. The first time the writer used this word brethren in the Greek, it's the word aldophos. It's back in chapter 2, verse 11, when he tells us that Christ is not ashamed to call you and me his brethren. And it's another word that's translated as family. Ohana, familia, kazuko, right? Or kazoku. Jesus not only brought us into a new relationship with God the Father, but, but we've been brought into a, a new relationship with one another. And the Bible describes this relationship. We, we've been adopted by God. And He brought us into the family of God. This bizarre and beautiful thing called the body of Christ. And to consider just our, even here in our church, like all of our varying shapes and sizes and shades and smarts and Some of us are taller, and some of us are shorter, and some of us are darker, and some of us are lighter, and some of you are buffer, and some of us are puffer, right? <laughs> puffy maybe. Your waves of hair, I envy. Some of us just have more beach, no more waves. So different, and yet we're made one family in Christ, one beautiful peculiar, odd family together. Any of you like to people watch? I think I've talked about this before. You look upon a group of people and they're just, you're trying to figure out what, how are they associated? Or maybe you're like, is that the mom? Is that the auntie? Like, how do those kids go together? What's this group about? You know? I, I do that from time, time to time. You look at this group and you're trying to figure out what, what bonds them. And I wonder if people trip out when they see the church. When they look upon us, this motley crew of people, times where maybe we're at the beach for baptisms. And... You know, what connects us? What's the unifier? It's a beautiful thing because we know what it is. It's Christ. Like Calvary unifies us. No, not just our name. That happens to be our church name. But that, that's the place where the cross 
of Jesus was. Hence, that's why we have that name. But it's the cross of Christ that unites us. I mean, one of the things that Jesus was recorded of saying when he's hanging on the cross, and it's one thing that we often will repeat here for us at church, is when he looked upon John and he looked upon his own mom, he said, behold your mom and behold your son. That families are made at the foot of the cross. And I wanted to pause here just for a moment. Just, it's good for us to remember this. It's good for us to, to think about, man, we are a family in Christ. And so, therefore, family, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. We, as the family of Christ, well, guess what? What has Christ provided us as his family? We're told here we've been provided access. Access to the Father, and bold access, by the way. Because of what Christ has done for you and for me, when He laid down His life for you and for me, we have been given full access to the throne room of grace. And the writer's already told us that several times, and even told us we can come boldly into God's throne room of grace. And what we've been learning recently, though, in the earlier chapters, latter part of 9, the earlier part of 10, was that what was once off-limits, very restricted access, has now been forever opened and changed by the blood of Christ. Do you remember? The, the thrust, if you will, of the old covenant was, God is holy, you are not, so do not enter. Do not touch. Do not come close. It's like the signs of the back of some of those uh, big trucks. Right? Back off. Keep your distance. There was these increasing degrees of separation for people to approach God. We talked about the tabernacle and the temple and the outer courts and the, the furthest out space anybody could go. But as you made your way closer and closer to what was called the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant sat, the presence of God was represented. It was filtering. It got more and more restrictive as you got closer and closer. And the message was, do not come near. When I was a much younger man in my early teens, more foolish than I am now, some of you guys know I you know, was born here and I Pretty much grew up a lot of my life here in Okinawa, and my dad was in the Air Force, and so I lived on Kadena Air Base. And so as a, a younger teen, my friends and I, when we got our driver permit, we weren't allowed to drive off base, so we would just drive the flight line. That was, you know, we thought we were cool, just driving around, blasting Run DMC and the Bengals, and you know. And, and back in those days, uh, Kadena had a plane called the SR-71. And the official name, nickname is the Blackbird, but here in Okinawa it's called the Habu. And there was a special part of the flight line in the airport area where the, Habu, the, the SR-71s were kept. And they had these, the, the fence line that was there and signs all around it that just read, stay away, and some of them even read something to the effect that trespassers may be fired upon. 
And so for us as dumb kids, we'd park our cars over there, and then we would dare each other to see whoever could go and grab the fence, run and grab the fence and come back. I would just dare them. They were, you know. We were too scared to get close. I didn't want to get shot. (laughs) In the Old Testament, you dared not get close to the presence of God. You dared not get close to the Holy of Holies. Again, you weren't permitted. You had to be a priest in order to do that. In fact, if you wanted to go into the Holy of Holies, as we discussed already, you had to be the high priest. And you couldn't just go anytime you wanted. You can only go one time per year. One person, one time of year. That's how restricted it was. And gang, he didn't go with boldness. He went with fear and trepidation. Because if the high priest himself wasn't properly prepared, both ceremonially outside and then inwardly, they could fall dead in the presence of God. And so it was solemn and it was scary. And there was this thick, heavy curtain that separated the the holy place from the holy of holies and the rest of the room. And we talked before, maybe you already know, how the writer has gone into great detail about what that room looked like and the different fixtures that were there and the fact that only the high priest was allowed to go in once per year. And when he went in, he had to bring the blood of the animal sacrifices and he would sprinkle it upon the mercy seed on the Ark of the Covenant. And that's how, and only him, once per year, was allowed to go in. And here the writer then tells us, brethren, family, we can go in. And we can go in with boldness. And we can go in, how can we go in? By the blood of Jesus. And verse 20 describes it by a new and living way which He consecrated for us. He preserved for us. He made for us. Through the veil that is His flesh. And so it, in some ways, this is still a recap of what He's told us. That Jesus, by His own blood, by His own sacrifice, by His life, He opened the door for those who would believe upon Him to come freely into the presence of God. You didn't have to have the right genes. You didn't have to be from the tribe of Levi. You didn't have to be the son of Aaron. You were the son of God and the daughters of God. And because Christ went in, guess what? We get to come in. And the the writer describes it as a new and living way. As contrast to the old and dead way. The old covenant says no way. The new covenant says Yahweh. Make sure you're awake. All right. right. What was impossible with the old way, Jesus has made possible for us. Because when he died, that same veil ripped in two from top to bottom as though God himself tore the veil, tore that curtain supernaturally, and now has provided a way for us to go in. And because the body of Christ, when He hung on the cross, was broken for you, 
bled for you and for me. His flesh was torn. His blood was shed. As it hit the ground, all the earth became an altar. And now we have free access. That is amazing. The way to heaven has been opened to us. And he calls it a new way. A new way. You guys like new things? Who here likes new things? Anyone plan to get the new iPhone that's coming out? You don't want to admit it? I think we tend to like new things, right? New appliances, new electronics, new gadgets, new clothes, new movies, new music. I don't think it's necessarily wrong with liking new things. You know, God likes new things too. God loves to do new things. The Bible tells us that one day soon there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, that God's going to bring a new Jerusalem, that God does a new work in us, there's a new covenant. The Bible says that you and I, when we pass from this life to the next, we're going to get a new body and a new name. If you've been around for a while, you know I want my new name to be Alejandro. It's just so fun to say. But God wants to do a new work. God wants to give you new life. The Bible says that when we are in Christ Jesus, all the old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. A new heart and a new mind and a new life in Jesus Christ. God likes new things. When the Bible uses this word new, it's not though necessarily the same as we think of new. Because new for us often becomes old very quickly. New things become old things. Today's things becomes yesterday's things. New news becomes yesterday's news. Things get old, people get old. Things get old. This type of new is different. This type of new is a new that never gets old. And in fact, the way that the Greek translates this word, it's almost more like fresh. You think about something that's fresh, that's always fresh. Fresh flowers or fresh fruit or a fresh cup of coffee. Like fresh tends to be vibrant and potent. And that's the idea here. It's not stale. It's not withered. It's not weak. It hasn't lost its fizz. It's not lacking. In many ways, that is what religion can be. Religion can be stale and it can be lifeless. It can just be a, 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 a cycle of rituals. But that is not what Christ brings us into. It's a new way, a fresh way, a forever fresh and living way. And so we get to come into the presence of the Lord. We get to come into relationship with God because of what Christ has done for us. And it's a new way, it's a fresh way, but it's also a living way. A living way which Christ has consecrated. The idea is that He's provided for you. It's, if you will, tailor-made for you. See, our faith in Jesus is not just a rebranding of the law. It's not the law repackaged. It's something completely different. And it's supposed to be living and dynamic and exciting and growing 
and vibrant. You don't have to answer aloud, but let me ask you a question. Does that describe your faith in Christ today? Is it growing? Is it vibrant? Would you say that it's alive? See, even the idea of this phrase that it's a new and living way, it's the idea that it's alive when we're on the way, that we're energized and quickened by the path itself. That Jesus is the way. He is the truth and He is the life. And we're to walk in the way. When I was a kid, there used to be these electric race car tracks, slot cars. Anybody? I know a lot of, I'm much older than many of you, but I, took, I, got, I grabbed a picture of it just in case. Do you guys remember that? And so there was this racetrack, and there's a groove in the middle, and, and, the, and the, the race cars had a little metal thing that you would just stick on there, and you didn't need to, you didn't need to um, control it. All you had to do was a squeeze trigger. It just, it's kind of boring now you think about it. All you do is squeeze the trigger, and the cars would go around the track. And sometimes, though, if you went too fast, you would fly off the track. But, but as long as your car was on the track, it would go. It was powered by the path, if you will. It was, it was energized by it being connected to the track. See, this verse, in a sense, is telling us the same thing. We, we find life when we're walking in the Lord. I, I just rephrase it this way. To walk in faith in Christ is to live, then, in fullness of life. To walk in faith in the Lord, it, then we get to experience then. The, Jesus said, I came to give life and life abundant. Well, we have life eternal. That's signed, sealed, and delivered. But on this side of eternity, listen, God doesn't want us to have a dull, listless, lifeless, humdrum experience with Jesus. And so when we walk with the Lord, it fuels our faith. It's not stale. It's not dead. It's not weak. It's not dull. It's dynamic, and it's living, and it's exciting. And and we don't have to look then for anything else to supplement by some other pursuit. So when I hear Christians say, ah, I feel like my faith or my walk is boring or it's stagnant. Here's what I'll say in response. And I, and I have to preach this to myself. Am I on the right track? Like, have I, am I plugged into where Christ wants me to walk? Am I walking in His way? Or have I found myself on some other track? Am I in pursuit of some other things? Am I trying to find energy, if you will, from a, a different path that God doesn't want me to be on. Gang, if, if we, myself included, if we plug into the world, if we find ourselves walking down that pathway and we expect to have vitality from that and life from that and, and truth from that, you will not find it. That's when we begin to feel dull and bloated and distant all of those experiences. Again, don't, please don't misunderstand me. There's nothing wrong with 
having fun and, and, and pursuing some of these things, but, but endless hours of scrolling social media or marathon Netflix night after night, listen, if that is what you've been filling your time with, I would say no wonder. If you come to the Lord with all the leftovers, what would you expect? You can't say, God's not speaking to me, or God, please speak to me, when you haven't opened His Word. When you haven't got on your, your knees or your face in prayer and seeking the Lord. And again, I, I, that's a, I preach to myself first. The writer reminds us, it is a new and living way, a dynamic and fresh and exciting and energizing way that Jesus has prepared for us. And so we need to get on the track. And he's the one who brings us in. The old high priest couldn't bring anybody in with him. We don't have the old high priest. We have the eternal high priest. And he ushers us right in. Again, the, the old entrance, if you will, the old way was designed for one entry, one person, once a year. Very limited. That's all. One time a year, one person, one entry. And you thought standing in line for Sakura Starbucks mugs was rough, right? You know, over the years, we've been blessed by different mission teams that have come from Cali and Hawaii, do outreaches with us, and pray the COVID stuff we just need to pray for COVID. <laughs> in, in one of those trips, we were blessed. We had a team from Hawaii. They were going to do some hula ministry. And, and so there's some families in our church that are connected with some of the bigger hospitals here in Okinawa. And, and so they were going to bring the team over there to do some hula for the patients and some of the um, elderly folks in the nursing home. And and in both of those places, the person that we're connected to actually is a family member to the hospital owner. In two different places, two different people, but they're both, uh, one, one's the daughter and one's the wife. And, and so in each of those places, they, they met us at the entrance. They took us past security. We didn't have to sign in our team. They brought us into a special room. They had refreshments and snacks and these things. And and we didn't need a special pass. We didn't need to sign in. But the family member, everywhere they went, we went with them. And we would just go through all of the different doors, all the different places. And no one said anything. And we were able to have ministry freely. And we were able to do that because of who we were with. The fact that they were the family member and their relationship to the owner, and then our relationship to them, we could go in and go in with confidence anywhere that they brought us. We weren't sneaking in. We weren't afraid of being removed or denied. And so we, if you will, had free access because of who you were with. And gang, it's the same way. Because of who Jesus is and your relationship to him, you have free access to walk into the Holy of Holies, to come into the presence of the Father with a grateful gratitude, or a grateful gladness, excuse me, 
And again, not on the merits of who you are, solely on the merits of who Christ is, verse 21, and having a high priest who is over the house of God. It's his house. He's the son. And we've been made family together with him. And so now, based upon the recap of what has been given, notice in verse 19 it says, having this. In verse 21, having this. This is what we have. Because this is what Christ gave. But now that we have this, the writer now gives us three imperatives. And they all begin with let us. It's the Hebrew salad. Let us. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us consider one another. But verse 24 and 25, I'm going to park. We'll eat that salad next Sunday. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 13. And he said that we were once far away, but we now have been brought near, brought near to God by the blood of Jesus Christ. Because of everything that Christ is and all that he has done, here's what the writer says. And he's told us this before, but now it's, it's the imperative. And he includes himself. There's a humility there. We can, and because we can, we should. Let, let us draw near. Let us draw near to God. Because all of the barriers that used to exist are gone. There's no rituals, no ceremonies. No chanting, no incense to burn, no novenas to count or bikes to ride. You and I can just walk right. And Jesus has opened the way and we are invited to come as we are. And as I already mentioned, we get to come with boldness. We get to come with full assurance, unwavering, because of faith in Jesus Christ. The idea of a true heart, it means to come with insincerity. Listen, God already knows you're a sinner. God already knows that you got in an argument with your loved one this past week. And so we, we can just be real and, and come before the Lord. That, and that's what God wants. He doesn't want us to be phony or fake well, we can fool others, but we cannot fool the Lord. And so we don't have to come with, with fear or with you know, timidity. That we can come with full assurance. Because Christ has forgiven us. Christ has washed us. We've been sprinkled by the blood of the Lord. Made clean, made new. And so we can come, and to come then with assurance doesn't mean that we come then in arrogance. We're not to be fake, nor are we to be flippant. 
Well, we can be casual in our style and we can be informal in our ways, but we're not irreverent in our worship. We're not disrespectful in the, the things that are holy. In fact, the writer is going to warn us of these things later on and warn us of such attitudes from verse 29 to 31 to be careful of having the wrong heart. But church family, notice Again, what the writer tells us that we have, verse 19, we have boldness. Verse 21, we have a high priest. Verse 22, we have our hearts sprinkled and our bodies washed. Because Jesus has removed the veil, opened the door, cleansed our hearts, washed us from sins forever, we can We should, the invitation is let us draw near with full confidence. And here's another question. Are you? Have you? Will you? I have a confession to make. Maybe you're you're like me. I can be so quick to run to other places. I can be so quick to look to other resources for help, for wisdom, for information, especially lately. So many people have sent me video clips and blogs and articles and newsreels and highlights, telegram group invitations. I mean, articles ad nauseum. And I found myself looking, watching, reading, absorbing, consuming those things. I mean, what has become your default in times of trouble? In times that we're living in now? And there's a part of me that feels like, I don't even know to go, where do I find truth? Is this article true? Is what that scientist is saying is true? Is that really going to happen like to our world? And I, and, I, and I don't know about you, but I found myself the place where I think I'm going to find comfort by information. I'm not comforted. I'm actually spun up even more. Then I become irritated. Then I end up yelling at my kids. Then I end up sinning. And then, I, you know, it's just a cycle, right? <laughs> Man, church family, we, we get to come to the God of all the universe, of all creation, who loves you with an everlasting love, who knows exactly what you're going through. That's what the writer's been telling us this whole time. Why would we go anywhere else? Jesus is our perfect high priest. He came as a person, and so he knows how we suffer. He knows how we hurt. He knows how we can hit the panic button. And yet, guess what? He loves you anyways. He doesn't condemn you. He doesn't say, you're so dumb. You're so stupid. Why are you have... No, he's like, hey, I get it. Come to me. Let's draw near. So the one of infinite resource and wisdom and power and love. And so let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. There is a lot 
that is coming against, well, let me say it this way. There was a lot that was coming against them, the original audience, as followers of Christ. And there is a lot that's coming against us today as followers of Christ. The harsh winds of the world were pounding against this group of believers of what they stood for, what they came to believe, what they were pursuing. And they were challenged. And again, we can experience the same thing. Back in chapter 6, the writer described the hope that they have, that we have the same hope of Jesus Christ, and he described it as an anchor, an anchor of our soul that is sure and it is steadfast. And what a great descriptor, because we know what an anchor does. It keeps something secure, but not rigid. It's in place, but there's still the flexibility, the boat on the water to adjust and to ebb and flow with the, the tides and the waves. And that's exactly what the Lord does for us in our hearts. And we're experiencing those things. And if, you know, it's been said that either you're going to, uh, you're either in a storm coming out of one, or guess what? You're going into one. And I find that to be so true. And we experience these things in our lives. And sometimes they're ugly. And sometimes they're unexpected. Sometimes they're violent and unfair. And they're despairing. And Jesus says to us in John 16.33, I've told you this so that you will have peace. But understand that on this earth you are going to have peace trouble. You are going to experience storms. You and I are going to experience tribulation. He says, but I'm telling you this so that you can have peace. Why? What does he say? Take heart. I have overcome. Gang, what keeps us secure? What should keep us secure? Jesus does. The hope that you and I share. And see, that verse is great because it says, He who promised is faithful. We're anchored to heaven. We're anchored to the hope of heaven. What keeps us from being swept away and being, becoming unhinged in the currents of our life, in the storms of our life, and all of the swirl and sway of the news and all that's coming on the horizon? Jesus does. And so the writer says, God's got you, so don't let go of Him. Hold firm to what God has declared. Hold firm to the hope that you have. The idea of the confession of our hope, it's, it's, that word confession means to say the same thing. To say the same thing that God says. Well, how do we know what God says? Well, the Word of God is what God says. So if I can expand this or extrapolate this a little bit more. It's the idea that we're to hold fast to what the Word of God declares and we agree with it. Right? When we confess our sins, we say, this is a sin, 
we agree with God because God said that's a sin. When we confess that Jesus is Lord, we agree with what God says Jesus is Lord. And so what keeps me and what can keep you from fear of what's happening in the world today as we watch the news, what keeps us from panic when we don't know what's going on? We're anchored to heaven. Hold fast to the hope that we have. To what God has declared. That God is in control. That His thoughts towards you are continually good to give you a future, to give you a hope. That He's promised that everything and all things will work together for good. These precious promises that the Lord gives us. Where do we go? That's where we go. What do we hold on to? That's what we hold on to. If I can make one last point, the converse of it, to hold fast then means you don't let go. (laughs) Don't let go of what is true. There's this growing trend, we talked about it before, where people have made their feelings the determiner of truth. They've made their experience the, uh, the qualifier for then their behavior or their reaction. Again, can I say this in love? Don't do it. Has God given us feelings and emotions? Certainly, but they are to be servant to our faith. Servant to truth. There are a lot of things that we will feel in a moment. There are a lot of things that we might experience in a season. And sometimes it will appear to contradict what God has said. Sometimes it will seem not to line up with what we're reading in the Word of God. What we know to be true about His character and, and, and His qualities. And you know what happens? Sometimes people will let go of faith. They will let go of the Word of God because they've experienced something that seems to contradict or they're feeling something that seems to not be in line. So I want to say this in love. Don't do that. The, the danger that we put ourselves in, when we begin to then allow feelings to become, you know, our king, you find yourself just in a, a whirlwind. You know, the storm seemed too much for Paul, but God used it to bring about faith for sailors and a group of islanders. And the jail doors busted open for the Philippians. He thought, that's the end. That's the sign of the end. I'm done. I'm going to lose my job and lose my life. And yet God brought salvation to him and his family. God used that to bring him new life. For three days it seemed as though all hope was gone. Jesus lied in a grave dead what he, you know, all that he promised became in question. In fact, the disciples gathered in fear. They thought, this is it. And yet we know that wasn't the end of the story. What they experienced in a moment, what they were feeling temporarily, three days later, Jesus rises from the dead, shows himself to them. Gang, hold fast. Do not let go 
of what you know to be true. That God loves you. God's got you. He who promised is faithful. Jesus is our hope. We don't have to waver. And we can draw near with full confidence of faith. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths. Lord, I pray that they would be more than just notes on the margin of our Bible or in a notebook that we might keep. But God, that these things become truths that we live out today and every day, especially in today's world with so many things that can grab our attention with so many unknowns and so much that can create fear in us. Lord, you haven't given us a spirit of fear, but one of love, one of sound mind. Lord, may we walk in your truths. May we be energized in the path that you have placed us on, a new and living way. God, thank you. Lord, help us to draw near. Help us to hold fast. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. I love you guys.